Welcome to the Every Nation Rosebank Church Podcast. At our church, we honor God, make disciples, and transform nations. For more information about our church, visit everynationrosebank.org and don't forget to subscribe. Hi, Every Nation, Every Nation Rosebank. What a week it has been. It's been, been the best of times and it's been the worst of times. We've seen human tragedy. And yet, and yet incredible kindness and faith and coalescence by God's people in the season. You know, just before recording, I was organizing with Every Nation Bombella, that's our Nelspray Church. They were buying a whole lot of food, loading it onto a Mission Aviation Fellowship flight down to Virginia, Durban, full of food, half a ton, to give to Every Nation Durban. And the money came from people in this church, Every Nation Rosebank, and from across the nation. And, and so there's, there's hundreds of things that I could say at this time and, and hundreds of things that I'm sure that you could, you could say. There's hundreds of things that we could do. But I want to highlight to you first what Pastor Sai just said. It's that we can volunteer for our crisis response team. We can give of our, our energies and efforts and there's going to be need for that. And we can give financially at this time. But more than what we do and more than what we say, I want us to look at the Word of God. And we're beginning a series called Isaiah Uncapped. And what was happening in Israel and Judah at that time speaks perfectly into South Africa at this particular time. So, so join with me. We're going to look at Isaiah 1 through to 6 with a particular focus on chapter 6. And I'm going to read to you now. And then I'm going to shape the context for you. And, and we'll see how this speaks into our hearts as South Africans, Joe Burgers, Every nation rose bank in this time. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him, each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to the other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory and the foundations of the temple shook and the temple was filled with smoke. And then I said, woe is me. I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live amongst the people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and he said, now that this has touched you, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, who shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. What do you see? Who sits on the throne? Who will go? If you want to put it into three words, envisioned, inflamed, and enlisted. Come with me to this watershed moment in Israel's history, the time of Isaiah, one of the greatest prophets of all. Isaiah is quoted in the New Testament 55 times, more than any book apart from the book of Psalms. And Isaiah means our God is our salvation. Isaiah speaks of visions that God gave to him where God revealed to him time and time and time again with unbelievable prophetic accuracy 
shouldn't even say unbelievable, because we believe, with incredible prophetic accuracy about the judgment that was coming, about the exile, about Cyrus, about the redemption, about coming back home, and then about Jesus, our Messiah. And these words were for Jerusalem and for Judea, the southern kingdom at that time. But they're for us today to come out of bondage, out of sin, and experience the fullness that God has for us. And they're words that speak into the hearts of men and women in this time of, of tragedy, in this time of heartache, in this time of fear. Now Isaiah describes himself as the son of Amos, and he was most likely the brother of King Manasseh, so he was royal family. We know he was married, we know he had kids, and according to church tradition, or Jewish tradition rather, he was martyred for standing up for his faith, and he's referenced in Hebrews as those who are sawn in two. So he was martyred for standing up for Jesus. And, and the context is that in the reign of King Uzziah, he was successor to his father, Amaziah. Now his father was a murderer, he was an idol worshiper, and he brought Judah into an incredible crisis. Jerusalem was conquered, the walls were pulled down, everything that was in the temple was taken away. And along comes his son, Uzziah, and Uzziah sought the Lord. He humbled himself, and because he humbled himself, Judah had prospered politically, militarily, and culturally. And there was a great deal of wealth and, and affluence. But as is so often the case, and we see this all through the Bible, we see it all through life. People become smug and proud and absorbed in materialism, pleasure-seeking. They start to look after themselves instead of responding to God and responding to the needs of their neighbor. And so things start to decline and Judah's less cohesive, it's less strong, it becomes shallow, selfish and becomes anti-God. And, and King Uzziah, who'd been incredible in, in restoring the kingdom, starts to move in deadly pride. Proverbs 16 verse 18 says that pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. And, and the essence of pride is, is that we shift our confidence from God to ourselves. And pride is manifested in insolence, scoffing, stubbornness, willfulness, and a hardness of heart. And so this king who's restored the kingdom and, and brought safety and hope and help he doubles down on his rebellion and he decides to do what only a priest should do. And that he, he goes into the temple, into the holy place, and he burns incense on the altar. And this was only for priests to do. Some things are for some people and some things are for other people. And Exodus 13, Numbers 16, Numbers 18 says it's a capital offense to do this. And, and so he's struck down with, with leprosy. He's made unclean. And and so the decline begins, and it's bad news. And just a few years before the end of his reign, this ferocious empire, Assyria, a great imperial power, arises from the north and starts to conquer left, right, and center. And it's on its way towards Israel. It's on its way towards Judah. And there's deep fear. And so God speaks through the vision to King Isaiah, and, and he starts off in chapter 1, and as I said, we'll focus on chapter 6, which is really about the revelation of God and the revelation of, of Isaiah's heart. But chapter 1, it's about rebellion, and it's about religion. And, and God says to his people in Isaiah 1 verse 5, why do you persist 
in rebellion. And, and he says to them, from, from the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there's no soundness. And, and that's the consequence of rebellion. And there's religion. God says to them, I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and of goats. Now, God isn't looking for outward form, you know, outward religiosity, outward conformity. He's looking for a heart that is after him. And he's looking for a transformed life. And so the people are, are rebellious and they're religious. And many of them are both. But there's a hope and there's a whisper. Isaiah 1 verse 18 says, Though your sins are like scarlet, I shall make them as white as snow. Though they're red as crimson, they shall be as wool. And there is always hope in God if we will respond. And chapter 2, God says, come back. He says, come back, descendants of Jacob. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. But still there's no, no response. There's no response to this vision. Come back, come back. Chapter 3, there's judgment. And he describes how the people will respond. I will have no food. I'll have no clothing. I have no remedy. Jerusalem staggers. Judah's falling. Chapter 4 continues. Chapter 5, no turning. And then we have chapter 6 where there's both a vision of God and a response. In the year that King Uzziah died, this king who had been strong and had reigned for 52 years, imagine that we've had a president, the same one, since 1969, and he's been strong and he's been good and he's taken us out of calamity into hope. That was the existential crisis that, that Israel, that Judah faced at that time. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And my question to you today, firstly, is, is what do you see? And there are three glimpses that Isaiah has of God. And, and the first glimpse is he sees that God is alive. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He was the living God before the universe came into existence. He was the living God when people first came to South Africa. He was the living God when Socrates, the great philosopher, drank his poison. He was the living God when Nietzsche proclaimed that he was dead. And he will be the living God when there's no longer a United States of America, where there's no longer a Republic of South Africa. In a billion trillion years, he will be the living God. God is and always will be the living God. And this should give us hope. There's no dictator, there's no president, there's no potentate in the world who will be here in 60 years. The turnover in world leadership is 100%. But there's no turnover in the Trinity. He never had a beginning. Nothing depends on him for his existence. He has and always will be alive. And, and that gives me hope. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in him, though he die, yet will he live. And we trust in him. That's John 11. We trust in him. Our God is alive. And so we have hope and expectancy because he lives, even though there's death and destruction around us. The second glimpse is he sees him enthroned. He's high and lifted up. He's seated on a throne. The train of his robe fills the temple. He rules the whole world, the whole universe. He has authority. We don't give God authority over our lives. He has it whether we like it or not. 
He's the apex court. He's the parliament. He's the chief executive. He's the chapter nine institutions. He's the world court and more. All authority, all power, after him, no appeal. And this is what God says in Isaiah 46. My counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. Daniel 11, it says, sorry, Daniel 4. He does according to his will in the host of heaven and amongst the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand. You know what? He's a refuge full of joy and comfort and power to us who keep his covenant. But he's a terror for those who don't. And, and the universe is held together by his word. And thousands of legions of angels are at his command. And Jesus said, all authority has been given to me. And so Isaiah sees this. And I pray that your vision would be of our God who is alive and has all power. In this time, you need a, a higher vision of God. The third vision, and probably the most important, is he sees him as the Holy One of Israel. 25 times he describes him as the Holy One of Israel. Holy, holy, holy. Only six times outside of Isaiah is it mentioned that God is described as the Holy One of Israel. But Isaiah sees the Lord and he hears the seraphim crying out, holy, holy, holy. They call it the trihagios, thrice holy. You know, to say God is holy once should be enough. To say it twice is emphatic. To say it three times is superlative. And that is to say that he is so holy that our, our minds can't conceive it. We can't comprehend it. Our, our tongues, our mouth can't express it. We cannot, just, we cannot grasp the incredible holiness of God. The Bible never calls God loving, 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 or powerful, 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 or wise, wise, wise. But it does say He is holy, holy, holy. Here in the Revelation of Isaiah, at the end of the Bible in John, sorry, Revelation 4, John's Revelation, again it talks about these creatures, these four living creatures, who night and day cry out, holy, 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 is the Lord Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Ultimately, our words fail when it, when it comes to holiness. What, what does it mean to be holy? It means to, the root is to cut or to separate. It means that we are separated from common things, from earthly things. We are distinct from the world and we are devoted to God. And the Bible talks about holy ground and holy assemblies and holy Sabbaths and holy garments and a holy city, Jerusalem, and holy men and, and holy hands and even a holy kiss. And many things can become holy if separated from the common and, and if they're devoted to God. But this definition doesn't apply to God himself. What can God separate himself from to make him holy? The very Godness of God means that he is separate from all that is not God. And so there's a, an infinite qualitative difference between God and all of creation. Latin word that, that, we, that I learned when I was studying at Wits is so generous. God is one of a kind. He is a class by himself. In that sense, he's utterly holy. He is God. When, when, when Moses was asked, whom shall I say sent me? When he meets him in the, in the, by the burning bush, he says, and he reveals his name, Yahweh, he says, which means I am who I am. Which literally means that his character and his being is utterly independent of anything outside of himself. 
He's not holy because he keeps the rules. He wrote the rules. He's not holy because he keeps the law. The law is holy because it reveals God. God is absolute. Everything else is derivative. So, so what is his holiness? And I'm doing a bad job at saying it, but, but his holiness is, is his utterly unique, divine, transcendent, pure essence. And in its uniqueness has infinite value. His, his holiness is what it is for him to be God, which no one else is or ever will be. And so in, in the end, my language runs out. In the word holy, we, we sail to, to the world's end and we end up in utter silence. I'm reminded of Habakkuk where it says, Habakkuk chapter 2, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Let me try to give an illustration. Have you ever gone for a job interview? Or maybe you were, as a single man, woman, you were competing for the affections of, of someone of the opposite sex. Or maybe you're going for a tender and you saw the competition. When you went for the job interview, you saw the competition. When you saw the other guys pursuing the girl or you saw those who were co competing with you, you were crushed. You had been in denial of your mediocrity. But when you saw the competition, when you saw it, you said, woe is me. And that's just in the presence of human excellence or human superlativeness. Isaiah has an encounter with God that blows him away. He has a vision of God who, who's, who's on the throne. He's alive. He has all authority and he's holy, holy, holy. And, and at that point, no longer does he, does he care but that the king has died. His vision is transformed. And I want to ask you, do you have a, a high view of God or a low view? How have you made God? Is he small God or is he God high and lifted up? A high view of God means that we are undone by his beauty and his glory and his holiness. And it displaces the rest of our vision with something that, that just captures our heart. Do you know what you see defines you? It determines you. It determines how you perceive your current situation. Will you allow the circumstances of your life, of Johannesburg, of South Africa, of the world to define you, to, to flood your heart? Or do you see God? The Bible says in Proverbs 29, without vision, my people perish. And the great Helen Keller, who was an author, activist, humanitarian, incredible woman in so many ways. She went blind when she was 19 months old. And she said this, the only thing worse than not having sight is to have no vision. So I want to ask you today, what is your vision? And I'm not talking about your vision of, for yourself, not the vision of your life, but what is your vision of God? Because that's the vision that needs to fill our hearts, that he is good, that he's powerful, that he is mighty, that he is alive and that he is holy. He cries out, Isaiah's response, he cries out, and this is my second point, inflamed. He cries out and he says, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live amongst unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king, the Lord Almighty. And then the seraphim brings a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar, touches his lips and says his sin is atoned for. Isaiah, godly man, is struck by his sin. 
by his unholiness, by his weakness. And he says, I'm ruined. And I'm reminded of Romans 3.23 where it says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Isaiah perceives, he sees it, and he says it. He cries out. He doesn't minimize it. He doesn't hide it. He doesn't blame shift. In the face of God, he recognizes. And he doesn't try to redefine sin. Some people say that sin is no longer sin. And so they stay broken. And society stays broken because we're not willing to call out that which is sin, sin. Isaiah not only recognizes the Lord, but he, but he recognizes himself. And, and healthy theology isn't just a view of God, but it's also a view on ourselves. And he recognizes that he's a man of unclean lips and that nothing that he can do. He says, I'm with these people who are just as bad as me. All the people around me, none of them are clean, so how can they clean me? It's dirt and it's dirt all around. And he cries out. God knows your situation. God knows your fallenness, your brokenness. And if you're in that place of being separated from God, then cry out. Because that's what Isaiah did. And as he cries out, the seraphim came from the altar with a tongue. And, and you know, the altar is, sorry, the throne is for God, but the altar is for us. Isaiah sees his failings and it's good. I see mine and it's good. When we focus on looking at other people's sins, we, we are pharisaical. When we become experts at recognizing other people's wrongs, it's a problem. The good place to start is recognizing our failings. And when we do that, praise God, he doesn't leave us. And so from the altar, which speaks of, of the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus, comes this, this burning coal and, and it touches him and it transforms him and it cleanses him. God doesn't leave us alone. What is required, though, is that we acknowledge. What is required is that we don't hide our sins and we don't hide from God as, as Adam and Eve did in, in the garden. They try to cover themselves with fig leaves. What works is when we acknowledge it. And as we acknowledge it, He comes and He cleanses us and He forgives us and He takes away our sin. The fire of God comes and it, it burns out the dross. It transforms Isaiah. It sets him alight and declares your sin is paid for. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. From the altar comes healing. It com comes cleansing. And, and this is the second thing. So first he's envisioned and, and then he's inflamed. He's set on fire by God. And, and then he's enlisted and, and it's incredible. He says he hears the voice of the Lord. This is like moments after. Whom shall I send and who will go? And he says, here I am, send me. And maybe you think that's a crazy response, but I, I want to take you to David. King David, the man after God's own heart in Psalm 51. After having sinned with Bathsheba and killed Bathsheba's husband and recognizing his sin, he, he pens Psalm 51. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And then he says this. He says, then I will, treat trans Sorry, then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will turn back to you. So he goes from crying out to say, Lord, cleanse me. Create me a pure heart. Renew a steadfast spirit. Don't take away your Holy Spirit. Don't cast me from your presence. And then he jumps to verse 13. He says, then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will turn back to you. 
and I love it. And this is what God is looking for. He's not looking for people who are perfect in themselves, who are self-righteous, who are pharisaical. But he's looking for people who've been loved by him, who've been cleansed by him, who've been touched by him, who, who acknowledge their weakness, but acknowledge God's goodness and power and might. You know, this week felt like a tough week for me, felt like a tough week for many of us. And uh, Tuesday morning, I was going into a meeting for the Every Nation Cape Town team that I lead, and I felt so empty. I felt like I had nothing to say to them, nothing to give to them. The Bible felt so heavy for me. don't know if you ever feel that. Open it up, and, and God spoke to me from 1 Corinthians 10, where it talks about God's power is made perfect in our weakness. And my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And God wants to take you. And he wants to give you a vision of himself. So big, so beautiful, so great, so holy. That you're not caught up in just the vision of this world. But you've got a vision of God. And, and from that he wants to cleanse you and renew you and transform you and, and set you aflame. And then he wants to enlist you, which means to put you into his army. And, and the response of someone who's been forgiven, who's been cleansed, who's been touched by God, the healthy response is, Lord, you've been so good to me. Won't you use me? Lord, you've given so much to me. How can I not respond in faith and, and share and, and do things and minister? So, as we conclude, do you have a high view of God? Or do you have a low view? What do you see in this time? Are you seeing God? Are you, are you picking up your Bible and, and reading it, consuming it and, and eating of it? Or, or are you spending your time on Twitter and YouTube and, and is that your consumption? Are you crying out for God to, to cleanse you, to transform you? Or, or are you winking at your sin? Are you ignoring where you're at? And... Uh, and not acknowledging it. And lastly, are you saying to God, here I am, Lord, use me. Use me to be your mouthpiece. Use me to, to be your hands and your feet in this time. God wants to envision you. God wants to inflame you, set you on fire. And he wants to enlist you. Let's pray together now. I'm going to ask that you stand. Um, get off your sofa, wherever you are, and stand before God. I'm running seating just for the camera. But just stand where you are. I want to do that. It's so easy to be caught up in just watching TV. Um, Won't you stand? Won't you lift up your hands? And won't you pray with me? Lord, here we are. Lord, give us a fresh vision of you. May we see you high and lifted up. May we have a high view of God. May we see you as the God who's alive. May we see you as the God who has all authority. And may we see you as holy. May you fill our hearts. May you fill our vision. Lord, we repent of, of imbibing the Kool-Aid of the world, of, of seeing the problems and not seeing you. And secondly, Lord God, touch us. Lord, cleanse us. Cleanse me. Cleanse my brothers, their sisters as, as they lift up their hands. Cleanse them of all sin, all bondage. Lord, set them free, Lord God. Touch them, Lord God, right now. Lord, let there be no stain of sin. Let there be no shadow of guilt upon them, Lord God. Jesus, you came. You, you paid the price that we would not be caught in darkness. We would not be bound by sin. But Lord, our sins would be atoned for and our sins would be taken away. So do that now. 
for your sons and daughters as they cry to you. Just acknowledge your sin to him now. His promise is that if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Ask him to cleanse you. Ask him to forgive you right now. And then the third response. Will you be his hands? Will you be his feet? Will you be enlisted? Will you say, here I am? Will you be willing to be the vessel of God for his honor and for his glory, to be Jesus to this world at this time? If that's you, just say, Lord, here I am. Here I am, use me. Here I am, send me. Here I am, use me to touch Jobu, to touch Rosebank, to touch South Africa, to touch the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.